Thank you, Lois. I, I can't say what a gift it is to have someone like you here. Whenever a guest preacher comes, uh, there's so many little details to attend to, and you've done a wonderful job, and it's uh, been great to thank you for leading the first part of the service. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be here this morning. It's a wonderful treat and a privilege for me, and I'm so glad that you came early this morning. It seemed uh, I wasn't even sure what would happen, and now it appears the sun is shining from, from what I can tell, I guess. But um, beautiful snowy morning. It's good to be together. Uh, as Lois mentioned, some of my, my, I grew up like 300 yards on Paiute over there, and my memories of Ivanrest Church are that I rode my bike through the parking lot probably a thousand or more times on my way to Calvin Christian High School, sometimes even on a Sunday afternoon at five o'clock on my way to the park, and I could hear the music inside. But I never actually, uh, I grew up, I went, attended fellowship here up the street uh, growing up, uh, but never actually came inside that I remember until uh, about 10 or 12 years ago. My in-laws, uh, John and Mary Ann Meyer, uh, attend here. And uh, we were, at the time, living in uh, California, where I was serving a church there near Sacramento. And when we were home to visit, would uh, be part of your congregation. So, again, uh, and now to have the invitation to lead you in worship or to preach, a wonderful opportunity. So, thank you. I'd like to begin this morning um, with our text for today, uh, Deuteronomy. Before I do that, let me just say a word about what I'm doing now, and it will come up a little bit later. Uh, as I mentioned, I served as, in a church in Sacramento for 14 years, and my family moved back about two and a half years ago, and now I'm doing uh, some work with lots of Christian churches, ministries, and nonprofits all over the country uh, when it comes to thinking about what does it look like to put a gift in your will uh, to that charity. And I'll talk a little bit about that more uh, later in the service, but just wanted to give you a little update as we begin this morning. So I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4. Uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. We're going to start at verse 32, but if you don't, it's very fine to just listen. You can uh, close your eyes here with your heart uh, to the words of God this morning. Ask now about the former days long before time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened before? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. 
to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land, to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to join me um, in a prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your many good gifts to us, for health and for life, for safety as we travel this morning, for the opportunity to be here to worship, to sing, to give, to listen, to speak, and ultimately to be transformed uh, by the renewing of your spirit. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds, uh, that these words uh, that I've prepared may really be your spirit speaking to each of us uh, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, one of my daughters uh, said to me, uh, Hey, Dad, tonight I need your help uh, with a social studies project. And uh, usually, you know, these, these requests come on a night when I've got 10 or 15 other things that I was planning to do. But I said, Okay, we can do that. And she said, I need to know about who and when our family immigrated to America. All right, I thought, well, I have my trusty resource for that. I've had that project before. So I, I went down to my office, and just so happens I have, um, it's called The Baus Genealogy and Recollections. It was compiled by my dad's uncle in the 1980s, and like every member of the family, I got my copy, uh, which I never had, which I hadn't cracked really ever. Um, except a few little, but you know, I was helping my daughter out, we answered the questions, and I started looking through it, uh, really for the first time. And there's this amazing story in here uh, about a man named Reeks. And I want to tell you about Reeks a little bit this morning. Reeks Baus, or Reekus, or Hendrikus, he lived, he was born 1832, died in 1909. He and his brothers and his father came to America in 1948. And Reeks, they say 191848. My great great grandpa is, is Reeks. It seems like it should be more than that. 1848 should be like great, 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 great. But it's just great, great. And uh, he talk, Reeks talks about they came to Chicago and they got on a boat. They sailed across Lake Michigan and came into the Black Lake. We now call it Lake Makatawa. And he says the boat bottomed out on a sandbar somewhere, so we had to unload and carry our stuff to shore. And he said, we got into, we, we were heading, of course, for Holland, Michigan, and we got to the center of town, and there were a few shacks among the trees. And Reek says, I looked at my brothers and my fathers, and we kind of together said, where is Holland, Michigan? And I don't know, my dad says. This is Reeks talking in, in his memoirs. It was a couple hours later, and a passerby happened to they run into him. He says, oh, Holland, Michigan, you're standing right in the middle of it. Reek said, it was such a bitter disappointment. This is not what we were expecting. 
Well, I guess then we better, uh, our plan was to go to Groscott, Michigan, because uh, some of our friends and relatives we knew had settled there. So they've had a guide who took them, in Reek's words, through the forest and over some sandy wooded hills and into some bottomlands, high and low, and we got to Groscott, Michigan, only to discover that it was more insignificant than Holland, Michigan. He said there were some shacks in the woods, and the men who built these shacks knew absolutely nothing about construction. These were pioneers. They came, they may have been farmers. I don't know what they did in in the old country, but they didn't know how to build houses. And so when it rained, it leaked. The bedding was soaking wet. When it was winter, there were so many drafts, and it was cold. And Reek said we needed to work, and there was nobody in Holland or Graskop who could employ us. So my brothers and I set off for other parts of the state. He said, I ended up in Kalamazoo for six months at a time. I didn't see my family. I didn't see my brothers. I didn't speak the language. There was nobody I could talk to. This is part of the story that Reeks tells. It's it's amazing. It goes on and on. There's so much more. But I tell you this today, not so much because of what Reeks has to say, but because of what Reeks' pastor told him in his older years. You see, the Reverend R.T. Kuyper was the pastor of the Grasscott Church, just a little bit south of Holland, and he heard the stories of these early pioneers, and he said to them, you got to write that down. Your children and your grandchildren must know why you came here, what you did, how you suffered, how you trusted God, and how he heard and answered your prayers. Put it in writing, Reverend Kuyper said. Let your children praise and thank God for this church, this community, this prosperity, and these fruitful acres. It must not be forgotten. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. The readers reminded us of that truth so well this morning. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I invite you to, uh, with a show of hands today, your heart, your story, your legacy. If you could write your own legacy today, if you could shape the way people will remember you, if you were going to write it down so it wouldn't be forgotten, how many of you would like to say or have it said of you a decade, a century, generations after you're gone, you know, mom, dad, Uncle Fred, Pastor Tom, he sure was a stingy fellow, wasn't he? Anybody? A miserly, tight-fisted, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of guy? Is that how you'd like to be remembered? Anyone? Probably not, right? More than likely, if we're given a choice of how we'd like to be remembered, it would be as a lavish, big-hearted, liberal, generous kind of person with a legacy of giving. But generosity is pretty hard, isn't it? I think it's kind of hard. It makes us want to stop and count and wonder, do we have enough? Will we have enough? 
Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that there's often three kinds of conversions that take place within a person when they come to know Jesus. The first is a conversion of the heart. That's where it starts. The second is a conversion of the mind. We start to think about it a little bit more. And third, Luther says, is a conversion of the purse. And he says it's that third conversion, the conversion of the purse, that's the hardest and that takes the longest. Did you know uh, becomingminimalist.com, a new website you could check out perhaps uh, later today, says that there are in the average American home over 300,000 items. Think about that for a second. Wow. One out of every 10 Americans uh, rents off-site storage. It's the fastest growing segment of commercial real estate over the past four decades. The average American today throws away 65 pounds of clothing every year. 25%, I'm surprised it's not higher, 25% of people with two-car garages don't have enough room to actually park two cars inside. Some of you are laughing, or maybe you're a little smug, thinking, ah, it's winter, I've got my cars in. But you have basements. Uh, I came from a place where there were no basements, so uh, the excuses are not as great here, I think. But it's way easier to hoard than it is to give away, isn't it? I, in fact, I was, um, and, and I was sad to hear of, of Jody's accident today because I love to ski. It's a wonderful sport, and uh, the cold is a, an amazing and beautiful thing, and so is the snow. You can throw rocks at me later if you want. But um, these, are my, I, these are my old ski boots. I got these 21 years ago, and boy, I tell you, at the time, these were some hot colors. I mean, look at that lime green. Uh, but my kids have told me for the last five years that these are hideous-looking colors. Um, and I thought, well, 20 years, one of these days, they're going to blow out on the slopes. So I got a new pair for my birthday last month. I was super excited. Uh, they're shiny black and green. Still green, but not lime green. But I, I'm, now I'm struggling with what to do with these uh, because they fit so well, they work so great, so I think I'm going to hang on to them for parts um, and as a backup. In fact, first service of... A screwdriver fell out of them because I, I keep a screwdriver in here so I can make an adjustments on the fly. But my point is, it's really easy to keep and hoard things, isn't it? I mean, we, we love to hang on to things. It's so much harder to think about, uh, to actually give them away, because you never know. Sometimes in the church, uh, we like to talk about a tithe um, as a benchmark for generosity, and uh, today, too, we're talking a little bit later about our first fruits offering. This first fruits is really, um, it's an agricultural, ag agrarian society kind of term. If you think about what would it be like if I didn't have a refrigerator and I didn't have a freezer, and I didn't have fresh produce showing up at my grocery store every week. I go winter, spring, and summer without anything fresh, and then the harvest comes in. And you think, oh, yes, fresh corn, fresh beans, fresh fruit, apples, everything. I'm, I can't, I've been waiting for this. And the first fruits is a way to say, yeah, that first 10%, not the last at the end after we've, you know, gorged ourselves on this amazing food. It's that first 10% that we're going to give to God as a way to say, we follow you with all our heart. We worship you. And one of the ways that we help ourselves stay oriented in that way is by giving that first 10%. I think it's a wonderful exercise. It's a way to exercise the spiritual muscles of generosity by practicing that. But do you know what, who the New Testament 
upholds as a hero of giving. It's this amazing story. It's in, in at least two of the Gospels in, in one form. But Jesus is with his disciples, and, and I, I've heard the story a hundred times, and it wasn't until I thought about it, and maybe you, have, maybe you haven't, but Jesus sets himself opposite the place where they're putting the offerings in the temple treasury, and his disciples gather around him. Now, I, I'm trying to imagine what those who came forward, I mean, here's a rabbi, a teacher, and his disciples all around him, and they're watching. And, and, and I'm looking over at this bowl because the tradition is that the place where the offerings were dumped was probably a large, bigger than this, metal receptacle, possibly in the shape, a bell shape. So really big uh, and, and metallic metal. So the idea is that when uh, the people would put their coins in, it had quite an effect. Right? So you can imagine the rich coming in with their, you know, bags and bags of coins. You don't even have to be looking at what's going on. You can be over here having a conversation with your good friend and hear the racket behind you and go, somebody's really cashing in. The church is doing well today. You know, who is that? Oh, I'm going to make sure I buddy up with him. He's a good guy. But then, in comes this widow, a person who really has no social status. She has no property. She has no way of belonging. And she walks up, and she really, she has two cents left to her name. And Jesus is sitting over here with his disciples. And it's as if he's saying, I just imagine him saying, you know, the disciples are all enamored by the loud clanging of the coins as they go in. And it's as if Jesus has to wake them up because they've been distracted now and say, did you guys, did you see what just happened there? Did you, you might have missed it. Because there's all these rich that came in and they poured in out of their wealth but this widow, this person with no social standing, this little old lady, so to speak, gave more than all the rich because in her poverty, she gave everything she had. It reminded me of a story that I had experienced um, when I was in California early on in ministry, and we decided we wanted to have a offering for the children. We hadn't done anything like that before, and we thought it would be really important to help them learn to become generous people. So let's, let's create an offering in children's ministry. Let's tell the kids about this. Let's invite them to bring in some of their own money. And so we set it up. The, next, the week came, and it was time uh, for them to bring in their offerings. And I said, okay, any, if anybody brought, we're going to pass this bag around. And right away, about three or four of them from different families raised their hand Pastor Doug, Pastor Doug, and they reached in their pocket, and they, each one of them pulled, I don't think they talked about this, pulled out a sandwich bag full of coins, right? You can picture it. And they said to get, I brought it all in. And I thought, oh. I started to worry. I was thinking, you know, 
I'm going to start getting, some of these kids hadn't been coming to the church very long. The community was not one where, where you know, church was a little bit suspect where we were. And I thought, I'm going to get some calls this week from parents who are like, what are you teaching these kids? They have to bring in all their money? Is this some kind of cult? And I was ready to do an impromptu message on budgeting and finance. I thought, you know, kids, you want to have the give jar and the save jar and the spend jar. And it's really prudent if you bring in a little bit each week and you save a little bit and you spend a little bit and then you'll have a really healthy financial picture for yourself. And then it hit me and I thought, do you see what's going on here, Doug? Do you see what's happening? So often today, it's easy to criticize our kids or kids that we don't know because it looks like they always want more. That they've got too much already. But maybe it's the case that for these kids, in this moment, they didn't need any more. In fact, they had an assurance, a faith, a trust, that they would always have whatever they needed. And it was that assurance and it was that faith and that was that trust that allowed them on that day to bring in everything they had because they knew there would always be more. I think what a wonderful opportunity if every kid could live in that kind of situation. That we believe and trust that God is the provider of every good gift. We don't need anymore. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The challenge to being a generous person, I want to suggest today, is twofold. Fear and forgetfulness. That there's a lot of times fear going on and forgetfulness that keeps us from being able to become generous people. There was an article published uh, some time ago in Christianity Today about the giving of American Christians. Somewhat surprising if you're not familiar, although I've, I've heard this before. The article said that as Americans' income rises, their giving decreases. So that if you uh, make less than $10,000 a year, on average, your giving is about 2.3% of your income. By contrast, if you make more than $70,000 a year, on average, in the United States, your giving is about 1.2%. We see this pattern in history, too. The writers of the article said, during the time of the Great Depression, on average, Americans gave away more of their income than they did during more uh, prosperous times in the decades to come. Isn't it interesting? I think it's fascinating. The more you have the more you fear you won't have enough. Fear, and I'll talk a little bit about forgetfulness, and I think in a lot of ways they go together. Think about forgetting, what do you, I mean, I forget where my keys are all the time. I'm constantly using that Find My Phone app uh, to locate where I placed it. If I introduce you to you, maybe three seconds later, I've already forgotten your name. I think for most of us know what it's like to forget something. But it's also true uh, that when we remember, some pretty powerful things can happen. It was the start of school, and uh, there was one of those uh, back-to-school events going on. And I'm sure you're familiar, perhaps, of, of what these are like. And it overlapped with uh, soccer practice for, for one of my kids. Only 
it, it kind of only sort of overlapped, and that was the problem. I thought it would work out okay, but as back-to-school night got out, and I got in my car, and I started to race over there, I realized, I'm going to be late. And then I thought, well, that's okay. My daughter will be waiting there by the fence, and I'll pick her up, and I'll go home. My mother used to say to me, you wait for me, I don't wait for you. That's how we do these pickup things. So I thought I'm following her wise advice and teaching my child some patience at the same time. And I arrived at the soccer field, like 25 minutes past the end of practice, and there was my daughter, like I thought, standing against the fence, and then right next to her was her coach, waiting with her. And I thought, yeah, of course, that's what he's probably supposed to do. And I felt terrible, and I felt awful, and I felt embarrassed. And I apologized over and over, and he just very graciously and kindly said, it's no problem, it's all right, we've been having a good time here, chit-chatting away, and my daughter's kicking, ball, kicking soccer balls with her. And, oh, man. So about a week later, I coached soccer too, and uh, one of the kids on my team, her mother was about 10 minutes late, and uh, she finally showed up, and her car, she had grocery bags hanging out the sides of the windows, and the kids inside were covered in food. And I said, I can't believe this. You know, we, I don't do this, I don't get paid to do this, right? I do this for free, and uh, you are quite irresponsible and inconsiderate to make me wait here like this. I didn't say that. <laughs> Thankfully... I remembered how someone had been kind and gracious with me. I said, no problem. It is not a problem at all. I am glad to be here with your daughter, and uh, we're glad you're here too. It's good. But the journey, the, point, the journey to becoming a generous person, really, I think, is about remembering. And in particular, remembering uh, the generosity of God. The text today uh, that I read was from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The context is really helpful to understand what Moses is trying to say here uh, to the people. The God's chosen people have been on a journey. It's a 40-year journey. They were rescued from the hands of the Egyptians where they were slaves to Pharaoh. God hears them crying out in Exodus 1. And he, come, and he puts in motion this plan that takes decades generations to come to fulfillment. And, but God ultimately, he leads them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He, he takes them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, to the very edge of the promised land. And they're about ready to enter, and Israel forgets. They hear the reports from those ten spies that go out to check out the land and they say, the people there are too big. The cities are too strong. We can't do it. We can't take possession of this land. As a result of their forgetfulness, God sends them wandering for 40 more years until every last remnant of that generation has passed away. Deuteronomy now comes as Israel's about ready to enter the land for a second time. And we, Deuteronomy is, you could kind of think of it as Moses' farewell speech. He's about to pass the torch of leadership from himself to Joshua. And in Deuteronomy, he's giving to God's people a call to obedience, 
a call to keep the law, and ultimately it's a call to remember what God has done. Ask now about the former days, long before time, from the day of creation until now. Has anything so great as this ever happened or been heard of before? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of the fire as you have and lived? Has any other God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another by signs and wonders and war with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you before your very eyes? No answers required. No answers written. The question's a rhetorical one. No, no, no. Nothing like this has ever happened before. No other people has seen such things, and no other God has called any other people in such a way. I mentioned earlier the, the work that I do now. It really work with Christian charities and nonprofits all over the United States. Some people, people say, well, what are, you, what are you doing? And I say, and sometimes it's really difficult to describe, but to put it really simply, we work with these charities, these nonprofits, to help them have conversations with their donors about what it would look like to include the church, the charity, that mission in their will and in their estate plan. In these conversations, though, what's really been fascinating to me over the last few years as I've gotten to know how this works and how people think is the motivations for why somebody would do something like this. And for most of these people, a lot of it has to do with remembering. Remembering what God has done. I had a call from a development director in Dallas a while ago. He said, I've got to tell you this story because you've been telling me this is the way it goes. And, I, and this lady, she just captured it. She's a 96-year-old person. She just gave us a fairly large gift, and I called her to say thank you. Thank you for supporting our work. Thank you for partnering with us in the mission uh, that we do. But I didn't get a hold of her, so I left a message. And a couple hours later, she called me back, and she was a feisty one, he said. And she said to me in no uncertain terms, you need to know, Mr. Tom, that was his name, that my giving, all of my giving that I do, it has nothing to do with you. I, I really, it, it's not about you. But my giving is about a way for me to remember what God has done by giving a little bit back. We've actually surveyed thousands of donors like this person, loyal, faithful donors. And would you believe this? The number one motivation that is cited time and time again for why somebody would make a gift in their will like this, from charity to charity, it's across the board, it's not tax advantages, I'll tell you that. Even before the law changed, people don't give to get a discount on their taxes, to get a deduction. It's not for recognition. It's not because they want to get their name on a wall somewhere. And get this, it's not even the cause of the charity itself. People will say, so if it's, if it's a seminary and the mission is to train pastors, if it's a rescue mission and the mission of the organization is to help the hurting and the homeless, if, the, if it's a, um, a church planting organization, and people, people will, the number one motivation is almost never what the mission is about. Now, I think that's a part of the picture. There's an affinity there. But it's not the number one motivation. What scores about 15 to 20 points higher with almost every charity is people who say, I've been blessed by God and I want to give back. 
That's what motivates them to do this. So what will your legacy be? How will people remember you? I'd like to invite you today to shape your legacy by remembering and by telling. You must write that down, Reverend Kuyper said. Your children and your grandchildren must know what you did, how you suffered, how you trusted God. How will you tell them? How will you show them? And pause here for just a minute. I suspect that many of us, maybe not all, but when it comes to our giving, have oftentimes heard this instruction, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. We're told that we ought to give in secret so that only our Father in heaven knows. And I'd like to challenge that notion just a little bit. I think there's certainly, a, there's many times when it is completely appropriate to give in secret so that uh, nobody else knows. And there's a humility that comes from that. There's no recognition, there's no payback, there's nothing we get in return. But I also think it's true that there are times when it is very important to talk about and to tell and to show people the way we want to be generous and the way we are trying to be generous so that it encourages and inspires others to do the same. You want to tell your heirs for sure, but I think the whole community of God sometimes needs to know why. They need to know who your God is, how he has blessed you, and why you serve him. I want to take it one step further and talk about your legacy. Tell and show your heirs, the community to which you're a part. But because of the work I do, I want you to think about uh, the legacy that you leave to your kids and your grandkids or the community to which you're a part uh, through a document that uh, ultimately your heirs will someday see. Your will, your estate plan. Another gift officer said to me, he said, you know, your will is your final act. It's your final testimony. And when it comes to being charitable, it's the last act of gracious, generous living the world will ever see. We say we can say, we can, we say, we can say a lot about a person by what's written in the ledger of their checkbook or on the statement of uh, their debit card. Your will tells this ultimate story that God's been writing in you since the day you were born. And imagine the day when that's read and your children, your heirs and your grandchildren get to read and hear, wow, mom and dad loved us, but they loved God even more. And they've made provision for his kingdom, for his causes, for the kind of impact that that, that, that has, not only on the charities. I've seen tremendous impact on charities. Um, in fact, find tremendous impact even from what we might call widows might givers, Little old ladies we didn't think had more than two pennies to their name who leave gifts of 50,000, 100,000, 500,000 in their will to impact the kingdom. But it's not just that kind of impact. It's the impact it has on your heirs. Even I've heard stories, testimonies from kids and grandkids who have ultimately received less because of it. But give thanks to God for the stories that their parents have taught them through it. Finally, I want to demonstrate uh, what an incredible impact I think your generosity can have uh, with two different stories. 
Uh, the first is a story of my friend Eric Dirksen. Eric's a church planter in Davis, California. He and I were part of a cluster of churches. We gathered monthly for encouragement and prayer. Davis is a really fascinating community. It's situated between Sacramento and San Francisco. It's a university town. As university towns go, it's very progressive, very liberal, but it's got this, it's, it's just bizarre in a thousand ways, too. Maybe that goes together. I don't know. But they have, in fact, they built a, a tunnel under the freeway there, Interstate 80, for the frogs to get across because they were concerned about the proliferation of frogs, and they're all getting smushed. Uh, but Davis also has a no-growth policy. And because they have a no-growth policy, real estate in Davis is extremely expensive. Uh, likes, I mean, real estate in California is very expensive. In San Francisco, it's very expensive. In Sacramento, it's a little bit. In Davis, it's extremely expensive. And Eric really and his family felt called there. They began a church about seven years ago with their family, a few other families, and lots of kids. And today, uh, they're a little bit bigger. They've got a few more families and a lot more kids. They've been renting space all this time. But the prospect of actually owning their own facility seemed extremely far off, if not impossible. And yet something that they desired. How do you continue to have an impact? And uh, earlier this fall, October of 2017, Eric and his uh, church were approached uh, by a small Lutheran congregation in Davis that was declining. They were down to their last 15 members and they invited them to purchase their facility. As Eric shared, uh, what they asked in return was really nothing short of a miracle. This is God's dirt, said the president of that Lutheran congregation. And then he quoted a hymn that may be familiar to you, We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that I have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. This church, he said, needs to be refurbished. It needs some care. It needs some love. But we're not in a spot to do that anymore. And the congregation said, we don't need a lot of money. And they came in at a quarter of the price that it would have gone for on the open market. Their testimony was this. They said, we want the message of Christ to be in the community of Davis. We're too small to be effective. We can't be the hands and feet of Jesus anymore. But we see in Christ's church that they can. We want this building to be used for God's glory. We, this small congregation, have this amazing gift. And they voted unanimously to do this, to offer it to Eric's church, to Christ's church, at one quarter of the price it was on the open market. It's an amazing story. I love it. It's an amazing story of what God is doing right now in the town of Davis. But what I also think we need to be prepared for and think about is what will happen or what could happen or what God could do through this in the decades and in the, de in the generations to come. And that's what my second story comes in because someone wrote in to what Eric was writing on a blog and said, I want to tell you about what this could be for you in the next hundred years. He's a pastor at First Church in Denver. And he said, you know, over a hundred years ago, our founding pastor, Itzard Vindelen, gotta love that name, uh, traveled around the Midwest and making, made a plea on behalf of his small new congregation in Denver so that they could have their first facility. It was a congregation that at the time was primo, composed primarily of poor, sick immigrants, many of them 
uh, had come there to find uh, hope and respite. Uh, they had a lot of tuberculosis in that community, and uh, they needed a place to call their spiritual home. And so Reverend Vindellen traveled around Iowa, the Midwest, uh, raising funds, and they were able to, to build, to purchase and build their first facility. As the pastor who wrote in said, you know, the impact of this over the last century is quite humbling to think about. Denver, First Denver, has ministered to thousands of people who gather each Sunday for worship. Lives have been transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. People have become agents of transformation in their workplaces, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their schools. And that could be enough, but there's more. That little congregation ended up birthing more congregations. And today, they continue to birth more congregations around the city of Denver. They've started a Christian school that serves children from 150 different churches. They started a hospital initially to serve those tuberculosis patients. It was then converted a little bit later to a a mental health facility, and today it serves uh, as a retreat center for pastors. There's even a Christian retirement community which serves people all around the country now that came out of that work in Denver. The point is this, those gifts that were collected for a simple building had and continue to have a huge impact on the lives of people. What was sown in faith 100 years ago has been multiplied 20, 40, and even 100 times. Friends, the gifts you give today are not insignificant. I understand today is Pledge Sunday, First Fruit Sunday. And I, I believe it's true, is it not? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that this church began in a small chapel just a little bit north on Ivan Rest. I think it's still there today. I drove by with my daughter. If it's the same building uh, just yesterday, a small Baptist church. And if you think about the history of Ivan Rest Church, where you've been, where God has led you, some of you were probably most likely not here in those days, but you rest on the shoulders of that legacy and that generosity. And as the, peop- as the city moved a little bit more to the southwest, so did Ivan Rest Church. As your needs grew for space, for staff, as your desire to impact the city of Granville grew, so did your uh, needs and your desire to invite people to be generous to the work that you're doing. And I invite you to participate in that today. Who knows where Ivan Rest will be in 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? Who you will have served whose lives will have been touched, how the kingdom of God will have been advanced through the gifts that you bring today. Let's pray. Father, we give you really what's your own, whatever that gift is. We acknowledge in faith and in hope uh, that everything that we have comes from you. It's a beautiful thing because it takes the pressure away from saying, I got to earn it, I got I to make it happen, but it says, every good gift I have comes from God. Will you stir in us today and every day the spirit of generosity, spirit of hope, spirit of faith. It says we have all that we need, and you'll provide for all our needs. Teach us, as the readers told us, to serve God with our whole heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.